everybody. I never realized how patriotic Aunt Bethany was at the uh, family events. But one of the ongoing themes of the Christmas vacation movie, of course, is the dynamic and interchange in this large extended family. And so very early on in the movie, when Clark and Ellen are talking about this Christmas season and having the extended family over, and Clark is all excited and has high hopes for the family gathering and, and being together as one. And Ellen's trying to temper it a little bit and remind him that not all, it doesn't always work out so much when the entire family gets together. But it begins in the movie, and we're introduced to the entire Griswold family. It begins with Clark, who is the main character, his wife Ellen and their two kids, Russell and Audrey. And each one of them has their own personality and their own dynamic, how Ellen, the wife, humors Clark through most of his escapades, but deep down, she patiently wades through his ideas knowing that they probably won't work out. Audrey, the daughter, is the typical teenage girl who gets irritated with her younger brother and acts embarrassed by her father, but can be defensive of her father if he's criticized by somebody else. Russ, the young son, seems to be a mild-mannered kid who attempts to go along with his dad's agenda. And then it kind of extends from there. All of a sudden, Clark's parents and Ellen's parents, the in-laws, show up. And Clark Wilhelm Griswold Sr. and his wife Nora both are mild-mannered, very supportive of their son, and attempt to encourage him and to celebrate every last one of his successes, even when it is clear that things have turned out terrible. And you have Ellen's parents, the in-laws, Frances, who is cutting with her words, seems to drink a lot, criticizes her kids' life choices in art, the father-in-law, who is grumpy, and continually offers a negative response to just about any situation. And then when it seems like things might not get any worse, looking out the window, enrolls Cousin Eddie with his RV. Cousin Eddie, who has a metal plate in his head, makes horrible decisions, tends to be a freeloader, no awareness at all of social etiquette and cues. And next to him is his wife, Catherine, very passive and quiet, and apparently not a very good cook, at least when it comes to turkeys. And then they have two children, Ruby Sue, who even in the movie you can see she's already living in the consequence of her dysfunctional home and suffering under the consequences of a dad like Eddie, no Christmas presents, and apparently she has a fungus on her lip. And then the boy... Rocky. And then on Christmas, we're introduced to Uncle Lewis, who wears a toupee, smokes a lot, and tends to have a biting edge to his comments, and Aunt Bethany, who's clearly undergoing signs of dementia, wraps up her pets for gifts, and apparently makes a tasty gelatin mold out of cat food. And the movie moves from one scene to the next of their collective dynamic and dysfunction. And one of the reasons why we find humor and entertainment in the movie is because to some degree, I think we can all relate to the Griswold family. We are all, every last one of our families is to some degree dysfunctional. Now, don't be defensive in that just yet. We're all in the same boat. Let me explain this. But you know this. Every family is made up of completely autonomous individuals with completely different personalities and different tastes and habits and interests and perspectives and proclivities and preferences and political persuasions and life experiences and intellectual and emotional and social capabilities. They each have their own pains and hurts and insecurities and fears. And on top of that, every last one of them is a sinner. 
So if you think bringing five individual persons with that much autonomous differences that are sinners into one cohesive whole that we call a family is not going to at least cause some level of dysfunction, you're dreaming. And it's okay. I recognize there are different degrees of dysfunction. I'm sure you're probably on the less dysfunctional side of things. But the reason why we can't often see the dysfunction of our families is that because to us it appears what? Normal. It isn't until we invite a friend over to the family or we marry somebody and they enter into the family and they begin to reflect back just a little bit of, you know your family tends to be a little fill in the blank. My three kids, whom I love, are growing up in a dysfunctional home because their dad is a sinner and their mom is a big time sinner. (laughs) I'm going to edit that at 11 o'clock, that's hers, because that's the one she's going to be at, so. And part of the process of growing up and maturing is the ability to appreciate and own what is good and also to recognize and leave behind what isn't so good. I fully expect my children, as they grow up and get older, I'm hoping that they will imitate some aspects of my life and thought, and they'll also have some that they'll say, you know what, I love Dad, but when we have kids of our own, we're going to do it like this. And if it makes you feel any better, if there's any sort of sting to the idea that your family, at least to some degree, might be dysfunctional, I can assure you, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and get a picture of what families look like in Scripture, every last one of them, to some degree, is dysfunctional. And I'm talking like the heroes of our faith, like Abraham's family, dysfunctional. Isaac, can you get any more dysfunctional than Jacob and Esau as brothers? Samuel had terrible kids. King David was a passive father who had tons of problems with his own, with his, within his own family. Even Jesus' family does not get sugar-coated. And no matter what the Christmas card might look like, I'm telling you, Jesus' brothers and sisters, Scripture records us, had issues. And yet, in God's economy, here on earth, he has given us these things that we call biological families. And for many of you, you are about to enter into a season where the intensity of your biological family might be going to a whole new level. Like, it might be perhaps this month and this season and this holiday that it might be one of the only times all year where you will see most of your biological family gathered together, where you will come together in one location and actually have to spend time together. This might be one of the only times that you're going to see that uncle or that aunt or get together with those cousins and see your grandparents for a meal and to enact the holiday rituals. And if you're living in a blended family, which is a very common thing nowadays, the dynamic and dangers are potentially doubled. And for many, this is something that you look forward to. And I wouldn't take that away from you for the world. You haven't seen your aunts in a long time, and you're looking forward to spending time with them. Or you've, you have positive expectations about what it will be like to be with the family. And if you have those hopes and those expectations, I hope that they all come true exactly as you imagined it. But we're also aware, because we've experienced it within our own families, families can have an unexpected turn that takes place when one of your family members might have too much to drink and is now acting the fool. Or the brother who decides in the middle of the meal is going to enlighten everyone on Obama's true agenda. Or the cousin who goes on a racist rant, and the whole time you're thinking, is this a joke? Am I on candid camera right now? 
or the uncle who hurts feelings even though he thought he was just joking, or the sister who didn't bring a single thing to the meal, didn't help prepare the dinner at all, but has the biggest helping on her plate, including Mima's last piece of pecan pie. And as a pastor, I've now heard a lot of stories about what happens in families. And these illustrations are very tame in comparison to what I could share with you. And while families can be great places of great comfort, great security, great joy and happiness, I think that's the Hatfields, by the way, in history there. <laughs> they can also be the most dangerous places in which we find ourselves. Families, even without meaning to, tend to claim too much for themselves and for the members of them. Families have this tendency to seek to be the most important thing. They seek to be the end all of all things. And loyalty to the family can be expected at all cost and in spite of any circumstance. Families can be the dispensers of gross prejudice. They can be places where assumptions and worldviews go unchecked and are simply accepted as true. Families can shape in us our greatest struggles and fears and insecurities. Families can be, not always, but can often be places where it had the guise of protection, but in fact was the places of greatest woundedness. Dysfunctional patterns that are ingrained over years that teach us how to relate to one another and even to others outside of our family. Habits and thought processes that can sabotage for us future relationships and opportunities in peace. You often think the things you think because of your family of origin. And so that's why when two people come together to form their own relationship or marriage, it will be through the difficult task of coming to grips with how powerfully our fam family shaped who we are and our capabilities that we have as we enter into relationship with others. Families can be the places of our deepest wounds. If that had happened a week ago Wednesday, our junior high group went to Southview Nursing Home up here on Miami Street. And so I went along with them and uh, sat down and was talking to the woman next to me. And we just, I mean, we just started the conversation, and I was talking about, asking about her family, and immediately she went into her dad molesting her. And I thought to myself, whoa, we're going deep quick. <laughs> Here we go. And I just began to ask her in regards to, um, would you be able to talk to your mom about that? And she goes, oh, no, she would have blamed us. And I mean, just a tragic story. And, and I recognize, yeah, families could be the place of deep woundedness. She's had a whole life story that she began to share with me, just kind of unfolded out of her life experience. It could be places of abandonment, places of abuse. Families assign to us identities that when you're a kid growing up, they become tapes that play in your heart and mind over and over, and they become very difficult to overcome. And that's why it's so important that we're careful what we say to our kids, even jokingly, that it doesn't become a tape that plays over and over and over in their life. You're the quiet one, or you're the extroverted one, or you're the smart one, or you're the pretty one. Because each one has their own implications and assignments. Oh, you're the obedient one. You're the responsible one. You're the screw-up. You're the troublemaker. And sometimes the wor those words become even more harsh. You're stupid. No one will ever love you. You're bad. You'll never amount to anything. You're just like your dad. And the child knows exactly what you think of his dad. What happens, and maybe you've experienced this in your own life, the family loves what's called homeostasis. It's the condition of being stable and constant and predictable. Even in its dysfunction, it longs to be the same. 
it does not celebrate well a change within the family and the identities that have been assigned. And the family has a way of pulling us back into a role, into an identity we may have truly left long ago. So for the son who was always in trouble, maybe irresponsible, and the screw-up, every time he gets back within the context of the family, he takes on that role again and that identity, even though the truth is he long since has passed it. He grew up and he has a good job and he's got his own family now and great kids and he's a good dad. But every time he's back in his biological family, he reverts back to playing a part he's long outgrown. And you would think that everyone would celebrate that. Oh, our brother, he matured and he got a life and he got his act together. But sometimes the older sister, whose identity is in being the good kid in the family and the responsible child, is threatened at a role reversal and actually, at very subconscious level, sabotages or roots against the positive changes going on in her brother's life. Well, it isn't going to last. I bet he hasn't told her the whole truth about his past. But families have an inherent propensity and desire to be everything to the individual parts that make up the family. It claims for itself ultimate loyalty. It claims to be the most important thing. Blood is thicker than water. Never turn on your family and other cliches. It tries to be ultimate. And honestly, I'm not sure churches have been a great help in this regard because in churches we have a tendency to elevate the family above all else. We have focus on the family, family life centers, family ministry, family counselors, family this, family that. And based on what I know about families, let me tell you what is really, really good news to a lot of people in regards to the biological family. What if I were to tell you that the biological family is not ultimate, but penultimate? What if I were to tell you that your biological family is not the most important thing and it doesn't have the final say about who you are by way of identity? Because when we talk about the gospel, which means good news, let me tell you, I've met enough people now and their life stories that if they were to find out that their biological family doesn't hold all of the cards in regards to their future, that's good news. To find out that you could amount to more than what your stepdad ever said about you is good news. And we know this because of Jesus' specific example and teaching when it comes to families. Now, hear me say this. Jesus is not anti-family. And I'm not anti-family, not for a moment. So don't hear me say that Jesus is anti-family, but Jesus will never let the biological family become an idol and the center of anything. He will always say, it is not ultimate, it is penultimate. And all you have to do is to look at his own family relationships to see this played out. The very first episode after Jesus' birth, that's played out. You remember the story? He's 12 years old. You remember the story in the Gospels? So Jesus grows up and he's 12 years old and all of a sudden... There's a short scene, it's in Luke chapter 2. Jesus' family takes this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, which they do every year. They observe the feast, and Joseph and Mary are headed back home again. And a whole day goes by, and they haven't seen Jesus at all. Finally, at the end of the day, they're getting a little bit concerned. Where's Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? No, nobody's seen Jesus. And so now, in our overly vigilant parenting styles, waiting a whole day to see your kid seems crazy to us. But back then, you traveled in communities. Like an entire community would travel to Jerusalem, and so it would be no big deal for Jesus to probably be with uh, either neighbors or friends or even other family members. So it's not shocking. But what happens at the end of the day, they're like, we haven't seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? So they start asking their friends, hey, is Jesus with you? No, no, no. Asking their family, have you seen Jesus? And nobody has seen Jesus. Now, this is not as difficult to do. Like, for 19 years now, Kelly and I have driven two separate cars to church every Sunday morning. 
And I can't tell you how many times we both have gotten in the car assuming that the other one was taking the kids with them, only to discover we left our kids at church as we assume. That it's very easy to do. Let me So it's easy to lose a kid like this. So after checking with friends and family, no Jesus. Now they start to panic. And you, have you felt that as a parent? Like when you can't find your kid, that whole hot flash that goes over you, your heart starts, like it is a terrible, terrible feeling. And now they've actually got to turn around and they've got to go back to Jerusalem. One day turns into two days. No Jesus. They arrive into Jerusalem looking for him all over the place. Two days turns into three days. Can you imagine? You know, put up posters all over, right, telephone poles in Jerusalem. Have you seen this kid? Can you imagine the anxiety? Finally, after three days, three days, they decide to go up into the temple, see if he might be there. So they walk up to the temple, and there's Jesus, just yakking it up with the teachers and asking questions. And I have to ask myself, what was Jesus thinking? Did he really think after three days his parents would not be beside themselves, that they haven't found him? Didn't he think, I should probably go find my mom and dad. They're probably worried about me. Like at night when it's time to go to sleep, did he ever once think, I wonder where my mom and dad are. I guess I'll just sleep here. So when Mary and Joseph find Jesus, you can imagine the collision of emotion, right? I mean, there's great relief. We found our son. He's alive. He appears to be safe. And at the same time, that other emotion, the, the other one that you're angry, remember that one that comes in there too? It's that collision. At the rush of adrenaline that you've been for three days straight looking for this kid. And they say to Jesus, his parents say to Jesus, why have you treated us like this? That's their question. Why have you treated us like this? And he says this in Luke 2, verse 49. Why were you searching for me? Which, at this point, if I'm in my family, like this one, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's happening to Sam and his family. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Imagine, oh, I'd be so hot. Jesus, you're grounded. Like, Jesus would be grounded if he were... And then he gets older, and he's about to launch his own public ministry, and he's invited with his disciples to a wedding. Do you remember this story, the wedding of Canaan? So he shows up, and weddings back in the day, they were like days long. They went just like a couple hours in a reception. Like it was days long celebration, full of food and wine, and hospitality was a huge part of the celebrations and very important. And then a little snafu in the party, the host embarrassingly ran out of wine. Like that's a, like that's a party killer right there, like, and it's embarrassing. So Jesus' mom turns to him and asks him to do something about this. Now, I always was curious, like, I'm interested to know, what exactly did Jesus' mom expect Jesus to do? Like, did she know, like, that he was able to do some hocus-pocus magic trick and turn water into wine? Did, did she know that ahead of time? Like, was there one day she was in her house and she was drinking a cup of water and had a rough day and thought, I wish it were wine, and Jesus went by and went, <laughs> so, like, so does she know this? Like, has he done this before? So she looks at Jesus and asks him to do something. <laughs> and this is Jesus' response in verse 4. Woman? <laughs> Again, if this were Sam in his house addressing his mom, woman? <laughs> Kids, you should try this today. When your mom tells you to go clean your room or go do your homework, just look right at her and say, woman, my time has not yet come. <laughs> And then his mom, ignoring what Jesus just said, looks at the service and says, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> and so Jesus gets up and does it. So they get, a bunch of, like, they get a bunch of jars of water, fill it full of water, and Jesus turns it into wine. They give a cup to the host to taste, and he's like, oh, my goodness, we, left, we 
we save the best for last. Like, who does that? You serve the best up at front. And so, yeah, you see how Jesus, like, he loves his mom, right? He loves his mom. Just a kind of awkward scene. But then you get to Mark chapter 3, and Jesus is in a house, and it's crowded. Like, it's packed. And it says in verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. And standing outside, they couldn't get to him, so they try to call out to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Which, you know, this is Jesus' chance to go, Hey, everybody, let me introduce to you my mom and my brothers, and kind of here's my family. And instead, Jesus says this, Well, who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at everyone who was seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Ouch. Jesus is redefining the circle. He is saying there is a new priority. The biological family is not the center. The kingdom of God is the center. And those who belong to it are now a new family. And in this, what Jesus is trying to express is that the biological family is not ultimate. Not that it's not important, it's just not ultimate. It is penultimate. The new order that God is bringing to the earth, a community of people called by him, that is now family. And while we don't feel it as much as many other Christians who might be around the world who literally lose their biological family because they've decided to be a follower of Jesus, having a new family in the kingdom of God is in fact good news. This is the same man who taught his disciples in Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, he doesn't literally mean hate your family members. It's an ordering thing. What he's saying is, is I'm ultimate, and what I say is ultimate, and the community that I'm establishing is ultimate. Your biological families are penultimate, which is not ambiguous. In fact, it's very clear, and it's difficult to think and to feel in those regards. And then you got a story out of Luke chapter 11. Jesus was teaching, and everybody's impressed with Jesus, and he's just amazing in terms of his teaching, and oh, it's and I don't know where there's a woman in the crowd who calls out. It's in verse 27. This is what she says. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Now, she's giving praise to Jesus and doing so via Jesus' mom, Mary. Like, what she's saying is, man, she must be so proud. Like, could you imagine being the mother of this man, Jesus, who's such a phenomenal and great teacher? Now, in the first century, uh, if you are a woman, your primary identity will be as a mom and a wife. That will be your primary identity. Above all, that's why it was a tragedy if you didn't have kids and a tragedy if you became widowed. And if you were both, it was super tragic in the first century. And this is, what, and this is the saying. This is the blessing. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. It would be a moment for Mary to go, yep, that's right, that's me, that's me. Until Jesus opens up his mouth. And he says in verse 28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, I have to imagine there had to have been a little sting in that for Mary. To have her son kind of steal from her, even if it's indirectly the blessing, and to redefine it to say, no, listen, actually, blessed are those 
who are obedient to God. Jesus turns to his mother, though, in this moment, I think what he's trying to say is, you'll be more than that. I know how the culture is trying to define you, but you will not just be womb and breasts. You are not just a mother. You are a disciple. And that will now be your primary identity, and that will be your greatest calling. It doesn't steal from Mary the reality that she is a mom. It just means your entire worth will not be wrapped up in this. And I'm telling you, for many people, that would be very good news. Because for many, for whatever reason, whether you didn't get to be a mom or for whatever reason the condition of your children has not left that vocation as good news, for others of you, you might just feel like you're not winning the Mother of the Year Award anytime soon. What I'd say is, well, good news. That's not your primary calling and identity either. Now, while there was some tension and dysfunction, in fact, I don't know if you remember, but his brothers and sisters did not believe in Jesus, like who he claimed to be, until after the resurrection, when it's kind of hard to deny it. Then, like, we actually saw you dead, and now you're alive again. And so faith came out after that a little bit. They, they tend to be antagonistic, but Jesus did love his family. In fact, you could see a tender scene at his crucifixion where he assigns to his best friend John the role of taking care of his mother, and he'll say, Behold thy son, and look right at his mom, and, and, and John and say, Behold your mother. Jesus is not anti-family. But what he does do is deny it the power to be everything. He denies it center stage. He denies it the ability to become an idol in our lives. And listen, family can very much be an idol in our lives. Jesus never allows family to be ultimate. He always decenters it and makes it penultimate. And what I would suggest is family as penultimate and decentered is always healthier. What this means is you get to escape the whatever narrative your family tried to assign to you that might not really have been from God. What it means is you get to discover your own identity in Jesus. You don't have to live out the pre-assigned role that was imposed upon you, often even by a very well-meaning family. Your dad doesn't get the final say in who you are. Your grandma doesn't get the final say. Your domineering mother doesn't get the final say. Jesus gets the final say. You're a new creation in Jesus. Your primary identity will be as a follower of his, and everything else will flow from that. And here's why this is important to us. What that means is, this month, when you gather with your biological families, as most of you will, when you enter into your family gatherings this year, do so confident in this identity. I am a follower of Jesus, and I belong to him. And in that, you don't have to revert back to being the family screw-up. That isn't you anymore. You don't have to live out what everyone's expecting for you to throw the tantrum when you don't get your way because that's not you anymore. You're now a child of God. You don't need to even put on a false mask of perfection that your life is all together and your children are so perfect and you're perfect and because it was fake to begin with. You get to enter in knowing you are screwed up like everyone else, but you are loved by God who is just crazy about you. With your identity in Jesus, you now get to enter into your family, your biological families, completely released of bitterness and grudges that you might have held on to for years. But that's not you anymore. Now you're a follower of Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus, you might speak truth to your racist uncle, maybe taking a side like Jesus does for those who are continually the victims of the majority powers that be. That's because it's a new you. 
in Jesus. As a disciple, you get to walk in with your identity squarely fixed as one who follows the Prince of Peace. You're not a man of war anymore, and you don't need to look for occasions to fight. Following Jesus does not mean you give up your personality. It does not mean that you don't have your thoughts and habits and preferences and all the things that make you uniquely you. It just means all of those things come under the lordship of Jesus, and you're a child of God. You're a son and daughter of God. You're a follower of Jesus. So enter into your crazy Griswold family Christmas times wearing that identity. And to make it easier for yourself, if you find that the same dysfunction happens every Christmas gathering in your mind, I would encourage you to predetermine how you're going to handle it when it happens. If you know that your brother is going to treat you like this, already decide how you're going to respond in a manner of Jesus. And for those of you in the room, and there might be a few, in whom your biological family is not an option because it's toxic or unsafe, may God surround you with a new family to love and care for you, a family that's centered in the kingdom of God and finds in it its center and its ultimate priority. Amen? Let's stand again. Let's pray. God, we come this morning and confess, at least for a lot of us, this is a hard teaching because we have uh, thoughts about our biological families. And so we don't wish to uh, shun them or to reject them or to uh, have thoughts that are not from you. We just recognize you've called us even higher to center ourselves in your kingdom and to a new family that you've gathered on earth and a new community that you've called church. That you've given to each one of us a brand new identity because of your son. And so what I'm asking is that in the next couple of weeks as we engage our biological families, would you already prepare in us by the power of your spirit exactly how we'll look, walk out that identity, the one that we have found in your son, Jesus, and that you'll give us the courage and also the protection and temptation to not go back to other pre-assigned identities that are not from you. Let us see ourselves as you see us, and let us take our cue from your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that, may it be a huge blessing and witness to our biological families. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.